You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster. And on today's show, British Prime Minister Theresa May promises MPs a vote on delaying the UK's departure from the EU or ruling out a no-deal Brexit, but only if her revised withdrawal agreement is rejected. India launches airstrikes against militants inside Pakistan in a major escalation of tensions between the two countries. My guests Lance Price and Daniela Pellet will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Hang up your gilets! A new poll reveals that a majority of the French public wants the Yellow Vest movement to end their street protests, which are now in their third month. Also... Bang! Ukraine bans its entrance from competing in this year's Eurovision Song Contest in a row linked to its relationship with Russia. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. And my guest today are Lance Price, who's the political commentator and author of four books, including Where Power Lies, and a former special advisor to the ex-British Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Also, Daniela Pellet. She is the managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. So a very warm welcome to both of you. Now... Faced with a revolt from members of her cabinet, the British Prime Minister Theresa May says MPs will now be given a vote on delaying Britain's exit from the European Union or ruling out a no-deal Brexit, but only if her withdrawal agreement is rejected in a vote next month. Are you all with me so far? That's good. Because that agreement, which will include changes negotiated with the EU, will be put to a meaningful vote by the 12th of March. So effectively, Mrs May has bought herself a little more time, but... Has anything genuinely changed, Daniela? Well, I think the, the thing that's uh, that's been ranked up here is this terrible feeling of anxiety uh, and uncertainty, which uh, means I mean, I, a major topic of conversation with me and quite sensible people is how we are stocking our freezers. Uh, ahead of time, and whether when we when we go to the supermarkets and there's a run on pasta, has it begun? You know, I think the problem with this uncertainty is that it has a momentum of its own. Uh, at the moment, I think we'll be lucky uh, if we leave with no deal, uh, which seems perhaps less likely now. But uh, mild civil disobedience uh, and disturbances might be likely. And I'm thinking with as the uncertainty is ramped up, I think the likelihood of them being mild or major also goes up. And that's an interesting prognosis because Lance, by buying extra time for herself, Politically, you could argue that she's ramped up the possibility of something happening on the streets. Yes, I suppose so. But she's only bought herself a little bit of time. And um, the impact that it's going to have over the next couple of weeks is is pretty minor. I mean, the, there were business people saying that they were mildly um, reassured by what's happened today. And there has been a change today. Um, 
but we still don't know whether or not Theresa May is going to insist that her ministers, for example, vote in a particular way, whether there'll be a free vote on uh, ruling out a, a no deal. Um, so I think it's a fair bet. I mean, we, we still don't know whether or not she's going to come back with something and she's going to twist enough arms to mm. get her deal through. Yeah, this is, this is the, the negotiations with the Europeans. I yeah, think so they're the existing... carrying on in, in Sharm el-Sheikh the last time I tracked it. That's right. So the existing deal, which uh, has been uh, agreed by the Prime Minister and the Cabinet and the European Union heads, um, is still on the table, um, but it's been obviously thumpingly rejected by, by the House of Commons. Um, so she's going to come back with some sort of modification to that in, in, in a couple of weeks. But MPs now know that they have other options on the table, one of which um, she has ruled out absolutely up until today, and this is the big change, and that is delaying our departure from the European Union, perhaps only by a few weeks, a couple of months at the most, but that's never been considered an option, and now she's made it an option, and that is quite, psychologically, that's quite significant. Mm. Psychologically, quite significant, but you look rather dubious, Daniel. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the psychological uh, point of view. You know, and as much as we try and follow this and keep up with it, I think there's this there's this miasma of feeling growing, which is one of intense stress and delaying it even by a couple of months, uh, especially when now the people are talking that she only has a few more months left in her. We'll already start thinking about. Who could, who could possibly replace her. Um, and that, none of this has been encouraging to me. Also, I don't quite understand the mechanics of, of uh, extending uh, Article 50, since as far as I understood, uh, it's not up to us. Mm. So that leads to another quagmire uh, of uncertainty. And no one, I don't think anyone is really explaining this very well. I don't think my confusion is, is something unusual. I think it's fairly generally shared by the public. Uh, uh, and that in itself has a danger when you have the political elite discussing uh, matters endlessly, on and on and on. Um, and people don't really understand what's going on and can't really be expected to because it's horribly confusing. Then um, the problem just becomes uh, self-perpetuating. Mm. And, and this is the interesting thing, Lance, it, it's perception, because, again, the sense of a disconnect that we have all of this happening within the Westminster bubble outside it, of course, people are to all intents and purposes getting rather fed up of the whole thing. But, I mean, how would the European view, the, the Europeans view these latest um, developments? Do, do they sense, look, here we are going round in circles, yet a bleeding gain? I mean, what's their take on it? Well, they're completely fed up with the whole thing as well. Um, so, I mean, Daniela, <laughs> so we're in good company then. Daniela's <laughs> right that the that the, most of the public in this country have switched off completely and they can't follow the twists and turns and the machinations and what this vote might mean and what that vote, vote might mean and, and, and nor should they because it's the responsibility of parliamentarians to get that right. Um, what worries the Europeans, and again, Daniela's right that they have to agree to an extension of Article 50, and they've always said that they would only do that if, if, if it was something significant, which might be another referendum, might be a general election, something major, but not just to keep on and on talking, because they are heartily sick of that as much as the rest of us are sick of uh, having to follow it as it, as, as it goes through. Mm -hmm. However, I do think that if it's like 10 days away from Brexit and we haven't got a deal and Parliament has rejected no deal, that's the one concession actually that European leaders probably would make they would allow there to be an extension. But that solves nothing. All you've done, I mean, we're talking it's about like hurtling towards the, the cliff edge. The cliff like edge is just Yacine, isn't it? a few more weeks down the road. And how are you going to resolve things during, during that period? It, it is not at all clear. So um, no deal is not off the table. Um, and even if, bizarrely, even if 
Parliament were to vote against a no deal by a large margin, the one thing Theresa May is right about is that you can't take a no deal off the table without replacing it with something else. And that mm. would still be the case, even if we were then going on to the end of June. Yeah, and I mean, it's also the, the impact it's having on the parties themselves, because we, we knew that there were tensions, certainly in the Labour Party, quite deep down. It's always been seen as, the European issue has always been seen as something which has been tearing the Conservatives apart. But we saw the resignations last week, mainly from Labour MPs. But again, the threat that there could be more of these resignations in the ranks of Labour, because Jeremy Corbyn has finally stated his position on a second vote. Sort Daniela. Of. Well, sort of. <laughs> sort well, of. yes, that's what I was going to say, sort of. He kind of supports it. He's, he's not against it, but he's also not active for it. I mean, I, uh, it take, would take a, only a very, 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 very staunch and uh, dedicated Corbynite to not realise by now that he really isn't into the whole European idea at all and, you know, would quite like to leave, I don't remember, as, as dramatically as possible. I think that would kind of fit in with his whole idea. Because he's trying to be very sort of elusive about the whole thing. But I think that the fact that he never actually went campaigning, been, we've got a good idea yeah, about where he stands. Been, you know, he's been he's been about as outspoken on Brexit as he has been about anti-Semitism, really. So there is a certain amount of ambiguity. We don't know quite where he stands, but you could call it plausible uh, deniability. I mean, I think the resignations were... They were mostly um, due to anti-Semitism and the kind of far-left mm. takeover of the party. But certainly Brexit plays a part in that. And, you know, the anti-Semitism, the far-left takeover and this uh, opposition to being part of the European Union all kind of skip along hand in hand. So uh, the fault lines in the Labour Party, I mean, if another general election were called, I think there were a lot of people who campaigned at the last general election in favour of Labour and voted in favour of Labour who would not be doing so this time round. And I guess, Lance, that one of the things which which emerges from what is happening with with the Brexit game, because it feels like a game, is that you could argue it's it's really exposed the frailties of the political system that we have in this country, that the situation has got this far when nobody is any the wiser and the public feels more estranged perhaps than ever from its political system. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, it's not a game, obviously. It's deadly serious. Mm. And, and But and, it feels you know, like a game, given the counter-strategies and the, and the, the, and the tribalism well, the, that it's brought out. It, it feels like parliamentary games are being played. That's certainly true. Um, and they're games that have uh, almost zero spectator value and, uh, you know, of no interest to people outside. But nonetheless, they're still, they're still being played. Um, and for the Labour Party, I mean, they are still playing games and Jeremy Corbyn is still playing games in the sense that he um, clearly would like us to leave but he'd like us to leave and then when it all goes horribly wrong which it will he can say it was all the Tories fault that's basically what he wants he wants us to come out without any responsibility for it um, so now he's had to move uh, towards the possibility of a second referendum um, but you still have to have a majority in the House of Commons for a second referendum and I don't think even with uh, front bench support from Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership you would have that majority in any case. So he's bought a bit of time for himself. We're talking about political leaders buying time. Um, and we're talking about the coalitions that are both the Labour Conservative parties, which have held together for a very long time now, actually, for decades. Um, but they have been artificial coalitions. Uh, and they have never been tested so uh, dramatically as they're being tested at the moment. Fissures have opened up, splinters, the parties have started to splinter. Whether they'll split down the middle is still up for debate. As they say 
in the cinema, the world of the media, it goes on and on and on. Let's move on, though, to something else. Another corner of the world, in fact, because India has launched airstrikes inside Pakistani territory against militants from the jihadist group jaish e Mohammed. It comes just weeks after 40 Indian soldiers were murdered in a suicide bombing claimed by the group. India accuses Pakistan of allowing terrorists to operate from its territory, a claim that Lahore has denied. Now, the latest military strikes mark the first time that India has carried out an aerial bombing over the disputed border in Kashmir since going to war with Pakistan in 1971. Now, Now, Lance, um, I want to bring you in here at this point because you've actually written the book about the Indian political system, about Narendra Modi in particular. So from your knowledge of the man, having met him, the scale of this surprise, was was it what you personally would have expected? It was. I mean, I met Modi five or six times during the course of writing the book about him. And it was a book about his last election campaign and he's facing another general election in a couple of months' time. So it's quite pertinent to try to get inside his head at this stage. And there's absolutely no doubt that the action that's been taken by the uh, Indian military will play straight into his hands, that it will be electorally very helpful to him in shoring up his nationalist base. Uh, And he's he's, going to... facing quite a difficult uh, election. I don't think there's much doubt that he'll come uh, emerge with, with, with the most seats, but he's likely to uh, fall back a bit from his uh, dramatically successful election campaign last time around, and that will leave him in a much weakened position. He really doesn't want that to happen. So he will be counting the electoral benefit of all this. But would he have done this at a different stage in the electoral cycle? In other words, is it just about the election? And I don't think it is. Um, I think that uh, it's been he's been very belligerent on on Pakistan, apart from the occasion, the odd occasion, like when he invited the uh, Pakistani uh, prime minister to come to his in- inauguration. But apart from little gestures like that, he's been very, very belligerent towards them, continues to be so. And given the number of uh, dead that you were just referring to in, in, in this attack, I think a very strong response from mm. India would have happened at almost any time. Because he certainly intonated that in the immediate aftermath of that attack. But Daniela, the reason why this is so serious is that India and Pakistan are nuclear powers. So put it in context, how much of a game changer do you think this aerial strike is likely to be with that with that element in mind? Well, the received wisdom is that uh, it, it's it's not in either on either side's interest to escalate and uh, both uh, Modi and Khan are just uh, a sort of sabre-rattling and trying to save face. But I remember... 20 years ago, 1999, there's a similar, a last serious flare-up where it se- and it seemed to come out of the blue, as I recall, because, apart from seasoned watchers of, of the scene, because then, again, received wisdom, well, nuclear powers uh, don't get into direct conflicts, mm. which has replaced the whole countries with McDonald's, don't, uh, uh, don't fight each other. But that was a couple of months of quite severe fighting. Hundreds of, of people killed on both sides. And we came very worryingly near, I think, to um, the, the unthinkable use of nuclear weapons. I mean, at what point do you get to the to the, the sabre rattling, actually? Do the sabres actually emerge from their from their scabbards? So, I'm, I, again, I think that uh, I agree that, that Modi had to do had to make a quite serious uh, gesture. And as for Imran Khan, well, he's fairly new to the scene as a a political leader and he has to be quite Mm. robust as well. 
So this is actually, in fact, how war starts. And, and, that, and that's the point which I wanted to pick up on. It, it is Imran Khan because, yes, he is new to the game of, of, of leadership, or certainly leading the country. And in the past, he has campaigned on Pakistan standing up to India. You've also had commentators saying, well, come on now, put your money where your mouth is because the Indians have violated our airspace. So how is he likely to respond? Well, the initial response, I think, has been quite clever, actually, in the sense that he has attempted to show, with the photographs that have been released, that actually the Israeli attack failed. Sorry, the <laughs> Indian attack. <laughs> I, I was thinking of strong, strong leaders defending, defending their nations uh, militarily, but we can come on to that later if we need to. Um, that the Indian attack failed, uh, that the bombs dropped on empty fields, uh, and therefore it actually, was actually a bit of a humiliation for, for India. Now, he would like that to uh, de-escalate the tension, I think. But he'll be very conscious of the fact that if, um, if it's in Modi's interest to keep the tension ramped up, and it may well be if, uh, entering into a difficult campaign, so it's not just how he responds now, but whether or not he sees it uh, in his advantage going forward to carry on ramping it up and to have a sense of crisis in the nation uh, over the next two months. Now, that doesn't mean it will escalate to the point of nuclear conflict. I think that's extremely unlikely. We have to hope so. Um, but it could certainly lead to, to war. Uh, mm. uh, There's a possibility of war by accident, not necessarily by design. Well, there's always a danger of that, and there's always a danger of that when you've got two nations, you know, bristling with weapons, facing each other over disputed um, territory. Which, which leads us, and the disputed territory, of course, being Kashmir, because you've got the partition in Kashmir, effectively. But it leads us to, to the international community, because at what point should there, or indeed could there, be intervention? Because we know that China has traditionally supported Pakistan. Chinese position is, look, you know, everybody just calm down, just stand back a bit. But clearly... These two men, they're not necessarily in the position where they feel that can, they can heed that advice. Because international intervention is, is such a common thing these days and so helpful. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really not sure. We're not, in a, we're not at a time of uh, uh, supranational organisations like NATO being particularly robust, organised or on the same page. Um, if you mean somebody taking the role of separating two guys in a in a fight in a pub well china might be able to to take on that role saudi arabia perhaps but uh i i don't think we've got to that i don't think we've got to that uh, to that point yet do you agree with that lance do you think that we've we've, we've actually not yet reached the point where somebody an honest john can actually stand in and say okay look enough yeah, the question is who has any leverage over over the two uh, the two leaders, um, and if uh, if you think back a couple of years, th more than that, three three years, to um, when there were some very nasty attacks on Muslims within India and human rights abuses that Modi appeared to be, if not complicit in, then at least turning a blind eye to. And President Obama went to his went doing it again, <laughs> went, went to India and said, this has got to stop. And Modi was furious and, and snubbed uh, Obama. So that would imply that the Americans wouldn't have much cloud. Although, I don't know, I mean, Trump's a mate. Well, um, I was going to say as well, Trump's a new a president as well. So perhaps so yeah, it, whatever you may think about him. It, it, it is possible. I, I, it is not unlikely a bit further down the line that there would be an attempt by perhaps not international organisations, but by some significant players who have 
some leverage over Modi, and the only leverage you've got over Modi is through the economy. So if the Americans were to threaten to renege on trade deals or whatever, then it's possible that that might have some mm. influence on him. But he, all his focus at the moment is on winning those sure. elections. But then, I mean, just, just finally, just picking up on that point about the Americans actually flexing their muscles on this, would they be prepared to actually impose trade sanctions? I mean, because Trump is he's, he's focusing, if you like, on, on North Korea at the moment. Of course, he's got the big summit on Wednesday. So the, the conflict in India and Pakistan, a bit outside his remit. But on the other hand, if he feels emboldened by some sort of success from Wednesday's events, might he be tempted to dip his toe into the water? Like he's emboldened by the success of his amazing North Korea summit in the first place and peace in our time. No, I don't think, I I can't imagine a a circumstance in which uh, Trump intervened that he wouldn't actually make this worse. OK, then, let's leave it there because you're listening to Midori House. Here with me, Juliet Foster and my guests, Lance Price and Daniela Pellet. And coming up next, a new poll reveals the majority of the French public want an end to the Yellow Vest protests, which are now in their third month. Perk up and tackle Monocle's Fit February issue. This is an essential guide for those looking to get in fighting shape for 2019. First up, we take a look at the people leading the way in whittling their nation's waistlines from Qatar to Tonga to Norway. On to the business section, where we sit down with Airbus's CEO to talk about what's in store for aviation, before checking out the company's streamlining and speeding up deliveries. In culture, we meet Rome's top art restorers, and in design, we touch down in Palma to meet Olab, the smart architecture firm that's transformed a palace into a sleek hotel. Monocle's February issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. Still with me are Lance Price and Daniela Pellet. Now, the French President Emmanuel Macron has seen his approval ratings rise at the expense of the Yellow Vest movement. A new poll shows that 55% of the French public want an end to the Gilets jaunes protests, which are now in their third month. Demonstrators in Yellow Vests have taken to the streets of major French cities protesting against government economic policies and so-called political elites, while some protests have erupted in violence, causing tens of millions of euros worth of damage to public infrastructure along with huge losses for retailers. So, Lance, good news for Macron, but is the rise a surge or a tiny blip? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a movement in the right direction for him, obviously, um, and he'll be pleased about that because he's tried to take the sting out of all these um, protests by um, uh, having this big national conversation. Uh, so he's shown himself to be listening, um, and I think the way in which he's gone about that process has actually been quite successful, from, from what I can tell. So he started off his presidency sort of likening himself to Jupiter and getting all terribly sort of aloof. Right, so he's dropped uh, that now. The French didn't like that, he's dropped <laughs> that, yeah. So now, so, now, so now he's in listening mode, which is a very sensible thing to do. Um, but it comes down to the fact that to instigate the kind of reforms that he's talking about, and he rather fancies himself as the French sort of Thatcher, uh, w- wanting to um, uh, radically uh, restructure the economy and perhaps Gerhard Schroeder did the same thing in in Germany. You cannot do that without becoming unpopular. Um, And he knew that when he set off on on, on the process. So he shouldn't be remotely surprised that he's unpopular. He certainly shouldn't be remotely surprised that there have been demonstrations all over over France. I've got a a, a property in France, and even in small areas... 
we live, our place is in a very rural part. I mean, it's been absolute chaos. But that has led to people turning against the protesters in growing numbers. And also, the protesters have started to attract some very nasty, mm. racially tinged, anti-Semitic uh, characters. All of that's turned them off as, as well. So things are moving in Macron's direction. Yeah, and, and that's an important point, isn't it, Daniela? Because we, we've talked about the, the Gilets jaunes before, and the, the, the general thrust is that you've got to be very, very careful in the way that you interpret them, because whilst there are some people who have genuine grievances, it's the fact that these rather nasty and reprehensible elements have become involved. And I guess that that's really opened up the eyes of the public and they just say, hang on, no part of that. Well, grassroots movements can often start out with a a great deal of public sympathy, especially when their concerns are rooted in in, legitimate, uh, legitimate issues. And even popular protests can still have a fair amount of, of public sympathy, even if it's quite disruptive. But then you get to a point when their demands are quite uh, chaotic. Mm. They pride themselves on having no leadership, but that also leads to its own problems. As you say, it becomes such a broad church that you have very unsavoury elements. And it's just like an extended London riot of, of, of 2011 without any uh, real end game. So uh, at some point, uh, public... In public interest becomes public frustration, and uh, they've they've really handed Macron a victory on this because their demands, since their demands are so confused uh, and so general, they can't really be met. And the natural development for this would be a handful of figures emerge from the Gilets Jaunes protest who then go on to join the political establishment and make this kind of and sort of solidify and sharpen. Um, the scope of this political movement. That hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, it doesn't seem likely to happen now. Mm. And this is, this is the point, isn't it, um, Lance? Because even though the, the figures for, for Emmanuel Macron look quite good, it's where the support is coming from. You break it down, it's mainly middle-class supporters who would back him anyway because they're in favour of these re- reforms. But again, it's, it's having that appeal beyond them. He has to be all-encompassing. Yes, and he has to remember the fact that he won the presidency almost by default. I mean, it was a remarkable performance um, in that he created a party from nothing and that party got a majority in the National Assembly and he won the presidency. But he won the presidency because the main centre-right candidate dropped out and the only alternative when it came to the final round was the National Front and that wasn't going to happen. So he he needs to be humble enough to recognise why he is where he is. Um, But he's also got a sense of history and he knows that every French leader, whether it's somebody from the right like Sarkozy, somebody from the left like Hollande who's tried to reform, has come across street protests and they've all backed down and he has made it clear that he's not going to do that. Now in terms of whether or not the Gilets jaunes can actually develop into something more political there was talk of them coming together sufficiently to put up candidates in the Mm. forthcoming European elections. I don't know if that's going to happen but if it did it would be a very very interesting electoral test and I suspect that that would cause them enormous problems. Assuming they could actually find people who who would want to do this because again as you've pointed out Danielle there's always a problem in terms of finding someone to speak and if they're saying the right thing it may appeal to one part of the movement but not necessarily the other but look and the final point really if the yellow vests are running out of steam in France they have left an impression in the rest of Europe. So could their legacy live on with similar mo- movements which have modelled themselves on, their, on them? Could they go the way of the French model? But what is the impression and is it a favourable one? And I think that's... Uh, this is the idea of the little guy standing up to elites. The little guy standing up to elites is 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 a great one, but I'm not sure that's the, that's the, that's the lasting impression. I think that it also speaks to something particularly French 
and particularly of the mood of the mood there and uh, I think for a lot of people in other places it has left a rather nasty taste in the mouth. Okay well let's cleanse that nasty taste with a music interlude. Come to me, come to me, you're the only one. Give me love, give me love, from dust till dawn. Come to me, come to me, boy we can get on. Yes, the Eurovision Song Contest is only a few months away and it's already caught in a row linked to the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. 27-year-old singer Marov, who you heard just there, won a public vote to sing Ukraine's entry, but she was then dropped when she fell out with the state broadcaster who gave her 24 hours to sign a contract that temporarily barred her from performing in Russia. When neither side could reach an agreement, Marov got the elbow. How tragic, but... We, we know about the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine over Crimea, etc. But who on earth would have thought that something as big as that could actually worm its way into the Eurovision Song Contest? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not the first time. And Ukraine has had this problem before um, over whether or not um, uh, their, their singers can go forward. I mean, I can remember... Verka Sadushka, who came second in your producer, who's a big Eurovision fan, might even be able to remind us which year He's it was. He's been playing an air guitar, by the but, way. Um, <laughs> but uh, but and her song was just after the, um, uh, the conflict with uh, the Russia, the beginning of it, uh, had, had, the, had the refrain, Russia, goodbye. Um, so that was very, very political. Um, I mean, really, it should just be a piece of fun, the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, and uh, the any kind of politicisation of it, I think, is is regrettable. Um, I think the state broadcaster, actually, to be honest, they should have seen this coming. Um, and they do have a lot of control over who gets onto the shortlist. So perhaps this song should never have even been on the shortlist. Democracy is all very well, but you, know, you, you, mm. need, you need to make sure... Yeah, sometimes you, you've got to use your... Keep your it under load. control. Well, now, yeah. listening to the song in context, I can't help thinking, that is she, is she addressing Vladimir Putin directly? Oh, <laughs> I think that's just my imagination. I think that's my imagination. But Lars, I think I'm sorry, but I think you're completely wrong because the Eurovision Song Contest has and always has been and will continue to be super, super politicised. I mean, it's more more about the politics than than the music. You know, it's nil 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 point to uh, Greece from Turkey and vice versa. I mean, this this year is going to be the most super politicised version ever because it's because being it's held in, in Tel Aviv. Yeah, I mean, it's Brexit in a few in a, well, in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, no, we've given up. Any hope of anyone voting for us for years gone by. So um, did they uh, ever? Since back in the but, day, yes. Oh, I'm, back I'm, in the glory I'm, days. I'm of a the bit older than you. I can remember the days when we used to win the Eurovision Song Contest. See, I do as well, actually. Well, there you go. Um, but um, no, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, I think when Eurovision, it's a bit like a European Union, actually. Eurovision used to be a much smaller group of nations back in the day when we used to win, and then all these pesky Eastern Europeans were allowed in, and they all started voting for their mates, or voting for Russia, or not voting for Russia, depending on what the state of the relationship uh, was. And you're right about Greece and Turkey; that's gone on forever. Um, but people have just sort of laughed it off. I mean, oh, here it comes again. You know, Terry Wogan and now Graham uh, Norton are sort of laughing. Oh, you know exactly how Greece and Turkey are going to vote and so on. That's kind of part of the fun. But I think I think with Israel, it's become a, a lot more serious because there's, you know, there's a serious move to try and get the whole thing boycotted. So what could go wrong? Nothing's going to go wrong because on the day of Eurovision, we're going round to Lance's because he likes throwing Eurovision Song Contest parties. Yes. That brings us to the end of today's show. Lance Price and Danielle Pellet, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Mavuli, and our studio manager was Maylie Evans and Christy Evans. <laughs>